Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Aquademia podcast. I'm Sean O'Loughlin. And I'm Justin Grant. And I'm Maddie Cassidy. And today we got a cool opportunity to sit down with someone that is going to give a unique perspective. So if you remember back when we were in Boston, we spoke with Kareem Kermali from Bear Maris. And it was one of our Seafood Innovation episodes. If you haven't heard it, you should definitely go listen to it because it's super cool and really interesting. They developed a algal oil that could be a potential replacement for fish oil in fish feed, which is pretty cool and could save a lot of money and cause some big waves in the industry. It's really cool. So what we're talking about today is the other side of that conversation, the use of fish meal and fish oil and why it's essential and why, um, how it can kind of work with products like Veramaris's algal oil and these different things mm-hmm. and and it's a we had just had an amazing conversation we just finished up so we were speaking with Neil Auchterloni and I think I got that right he he's correcting me a couple of times and he's from IFO which is the it's IFO the marine ingredients organization and they're a similar organization to GAA in the sense that they kind of you know they don't produce fish meal and fish oil but they advocate for the industry and they have regulations and standards and they make sure that people are producing this stuff correctly so it was a super cool conversation i learned a lot he whipped out some acronyms that blew my mind <laughs> um, which some of our listeners will understand and and some won't some won't and that was on the don't understand yeah whatever <laughs> the acronym is for mad cow disease it's not mcd um <laughs> it's something else and it's I, I already forgot it because it's ridiculous, but he said he would write it down and send it to us. <laughs> so it was a cool conversation and I hope you enjoy it. But before we get into it, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to Aquademia on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Spotify, iHeartRadio, anywhere that you listen to podcasts. We are there, hopefully. If you can't find us, please send me an email and I'll make sure that we get on that platform as well. And you got to hit that subscribe button or else you're not going to learn all of these sweet little seafood knowledge nuggets yeah, that we send You're not going to know when there. a new episode is released. Yeah. I mean, as soon as a new episode comes out, it'll download to your phone automatically. and You'll be good to go. So who doesn't want that? Literally no one. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've gotten onto a plane and then realized at the last minute, oh my gosh, I didn't download any podcasts <laughs> And then I, I've gone to my app, and then they're all already downloaded. You think that would have happened once, and then you'd be like, oh, no, okay. it's it's continual, <laughs> always. I always panic. Wow. Yeah, we we. But my subscriptions have my back. We love the easy button, and subscribe is the easy button. You subscribe. It's a little purple button in Apple Podcasts, and it makes a big difference, and it'll make it easy for you. So if you do use a platform that we're not on, and you would prefer us to be on that, so you don't need to listen on a web browser or something like that. Please email us at podcast at aquaculturealliance.org. Uh, if you have any topics that you want to suggest or folks that you'd like us to talk to on the show, please let us know. We check every email that comes through there and we try to reply to all of them. You can also find us on Twitter at AquademiaPod. Or if you are feeling really brave and want to risk hearing your own voice on the show someday, you can leave us a voicemail at one 603 384-3560. And just like Sean mentioned, you know, we do want to hear from you. Uh, same with our reviews. I mean, leave us a review, five-star review and, uh, and rate us. Well, I know we've mentioned on previous episodes, but it's so important for us to get those reviews just because that helps us tweak our content and focus on what our listeners want to hear. And based on the algorithm for how shows get populated and appear in people's searches, you know, ones with good reviews and or a lot of reviews and high rate uh, ratings that that really helps us out. So we would appreciate you know you spending one to five minutes just to give us some insight. Yeah, yeah, and 
last part of our spiel. Here we go. If you want to get access to extra audio content from us, as well as full interviews with some of our guests, to do that, you can become a member of Global Aquaculture Alliance at aquaculturealliance.org slash membership. Yeah, and this that's really pretty valuable. The, the membership is pretty cool. I mean... We've said it before. We don't have just audio stuff. There is extra audio content and full full expert interviews. There's also uh, video content. There's some infographics that you can use. There's a lot of there's Data. a there's an entire social network for GAA members. It's called My GAA, and it's basically uh, LinkedIn for aquaculture. Really, it's a place that people who are interested in the seafood industry can go in there and network with people that have been in this industry for so long and are having really intelligent conversations about some of this stuff. I mean, you got to be a member to be in there. So check it out. I mean, it's totally worth it. Aquaculturealliance.org slash membership. All right. Let's get into this conversation. I I found it interesting. I'm sure you guys yeah, enjoyed it, it as much as I did. Yeah, it's worth a listen. Big it's, thank you to Neil for coming on the show and just giving us all of his knowledge from his yeah, head. Yeah, <laughs> and he's got a whole lot in there. And he definitely, he's he agreed to come on again and do a another full interview for members only that'll get a little more in the weeds a little more in the details so if that's something you're interested in keep on the lookout for that as well so let's do it let's talk about seafood welcome to the aquademia podcast our diet is hurting the environment in myriad ways I mean, we desperately need to eat more seafood this is a pioneering industry with a whole lot of people who have really good ideas and a lot of experience and are unafraid aquademia is your go-to podcast for a fresh take on all things seafood so we are sitting down right now with neil octorloni from ifo neil how's it going it's going very well, thank you, Sean. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, joining us today on this call. We wanted to have this call because we actually did an episode not too long ago with Kareem Kermali uh, from Verimaris, who which is a company that produces algal oil for aquaculture feeds. And we were super interested in that. We thought it was really cool. But we also want to make sure that we're not putting out a perception that we are not in support of the use of fish meal and fish oil in this. And we're put, we're not putting all of our baskets into that. We think that's an amazing innovation that could be super helpful. But we also want to talk about the other side of things too, which is the use of fish meal and fish oil. And that's why you're here today to talk about the benefits of that and what's going on in that world and that side of the conversation. So thank you again for coming on. And can you give us just a little bit of info about yourself, where you came from and how you got to where you are? Sure. Yeah, of course I can. I think first of all, I'd like to say thank you for the opportunity to to appear on this podcast. I think it's it's very good. Uh, we we know Verimaris. Um, I know Kareem very well. Um, I like what they're doing. And, and it really a lot of these novel ingredients are, are complementary to fish meal and fish oil. Fish meal and fish oil are essentially the foundations for the modern aquaculture industry that we have. And uh, if we look at um, that roughly 5 million tons of fish meal, which is produced every year, and just under 1 million tons of fish oil, which is produced every year, the modern aquaculture industry as we know it would not exist without that. It, it is so essential to, to that mm. industry. It's a really, really important aspect of it. In terms of uh, what I do in IFO, I'm the technical director in IFO. The full title for the organization is IFO, the Marine Ingredients Organization. And um, 
that was uh, a title which was changed uh, roughly about eight years ago. The IFFO stands for, or stood for, International Fish Meal and Fish Oil Organization. Uh, and um, prior to that point, about eight years ago, really, that was the fact that we, we represent fish meal and fish oil interests around the world. Now rebranded as the Marine Ingredients Organization, actually now brings in under our representation some of these novel ingredients when they come from marine sources. Oh, so, interesting. So yeah, very very interesting. And and what we say at for these about these novel ingredients is that they are complementary, and it's it's not that we're in competition with them. It's about as well as not instead of is a is a phrase that we've used now for several years. Essentially, aquaculture is growing around the world. Uh, in order to satisfy that demand for aquaculture growth, we need more feed. In order to meet, need more feed, we need more feed ingredients. And essentially, that fish meal and fish oil production on an annual basis is, is finite. It, it hasn't really changed over time. And it, and it is roughly that 5 million tons fish meal, 1 million ton of fish oil, uh, which actually is very interesting from the point of view of sustainability as well. The, the industry has often been criticized about what it does and terms of the production of these ingredients but actually the volume of uh, production hasn't really changed over the last 20 years it's been pretty much constant that's the level so that's an interesting point but going back to ifo as an organization ifo is a trade body really interesting trade body actually because the INFO is international so we represent member in something like Approaching 50 different countries, it's very close to that in terms of numbers. We have both fish meal producers and non-producer members within the organization. We'll have something approaching high 230s in numbers for members overall, and they can be anything from micro businesses, SMEs, all the way through to large multinational companies too. About half of that, or slightly more than half, would be producer members producing fish meal and fish oil. And the other half are non-producer members, which includes things like feed companies, uh, manufacturers of other feed additives, aquaculture businesses, alternative ingredient manufacturers, and the like too. So, so we we have a very broad representation. And what what IFO does in terms of representing the industry is pretty important in terms of regulations, in terms of technical issues, which are, are clearly within. The domain of the technical work in, in IFO, but we also do a lot of collation of data, market data for the membership. We have a very strong unit which uh, supplies data on that market in through to our membership on a weekly basis, a monthly basis, an annual basis. Uh, so there's a lot on that side. We also have um, a very strong office in China. We have representation in China, which reflects the importance of China as a, a market for fish meal and fish oil around the world. So uh, yeah, we do we do a whole host of different things really from uh, the point of view of the delivery of our, our day-to-day work in it. Yeah, it sounds like you guys are really busy. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you're uh, fairly similar to what we do here at, at GAA, same kind of idea. You're not necessarily a producer of the product, but you're here to advocate for the industry and, and make sure that they're doing things right and that they are following regulations and stuff. Do you does IFO have a standard for fish meal, fish oil production, or is that not something that your company would be interested in? Yeah, there's an interesting story about the development of the IFO responsible supply standard, uh, which dates back a long way. But yeah, to, to your point about um, 
IFO and GAA. I think we are very similar organizations. And I think it probably the, the principal illustration of that is the fact that Andrew Mallison, your current <laughs> officer, I was waiting was, for it. Yeah, he's the, uh, he used to be the, the director general of IFO uh, until yeah. about uh, July last year. So he, so he had moved from IFO to the GAA. So yeah, thank you for him, by the way. <laughs> You're very welcome. <laughs> Wait, I, I'd love to ha have another episode where we have both of you on uh, kind of a roundtable to talk about that would, some more. That would be superb. Uh, stuff. That'd be kind uh, of yeah, fun. Yeah, I mean, it, it, Andrew was a great loss to the organization. I'm sure he's doing great things with uh, GAA. But we, we now have a new director general, Patrick Martin Johannesson, who's come from the feed sector as well, and he's doing a great yep. job here too, so... So it's all good, really. The I think um, what what organisations like the GAA and what IFO do is is incredibly valuable because there is so much misinformation and misunderstanding or deliberate misunderstanding about aquaculture industry, uh, the issues around it, within which feed is a really important issue as well. Health is another important issue too. Fish health, and actually one of the things that I'm particularly interested in is that link between nutrition and fish health and I think there's a lot more to come on that in the future in terms of scientific research and we've just touched the surface of that from the point of view of, of fish as farmed animals but probably the same is true of human nutrition as well there's a long way to go on that front too but I think yeah, fish absolutely. meal and fish oil in terms of the nutrition really really important just but just go back to your point about the standard the development of the standard it's, oh yeah, yeah that's that's a really it's a really important point as well. It was around about the year 2007, and it was my predecessor in this role, uh, Dr. Andy Jackson, who was the, the technical director for IFO at the time, um, had started the development of this IFO responsible supply scheme, which was a scheme which was developed really with the fish meal industry in mind. And, and really, it ties in with what I just said, really. It was, IFO, IFO knows that the accusations that are leveled at the fish meal industry are, are in large invalid. And really what IFO wanted to develop at that time was, was an independently certified scheme, which actually showed essentially customers, because this was developed as a business -to business scheme, unlike um, some of the other seafood certifica certification schemes like MSC, for instance, which are much more uh, business to customer, but this is business to business. So it's really showing retailers in the supply chain that actually a lot of these criticisms of how the raw material is sourced and how fish meal is produced are, are, are just not true. Uh, and so a lot of really hard work from, from Andy and, and the team at the time over 2007 to 2009 actually developed this version one of this standard with the first certified fish meal producers coming online in 2010. Now, since then, uh, it's been a wonderful success story in that this scheme now covers a little over 54% of total annual production of fish meal around the world. Oh, that's wow. huge. Yeah, that it is, is enormous. That is huge. It is enormous. And, it, and if you compare this with the certified proportion of alternative feed ingredients, it's well ahead. It's well ahead. If you, I've, I've, personally looked at figures for something like soya meal and really challenging to get anything more than, than two to three percent of annual production being certified in soya. Wheat, I can't even find a standard for, for wheat, uh, others as well. So so I think it's really, it's a, it's a fantastic story this. Now, um, I, I guess some people are skeptical because the standard has the acronym IFFO in front of it, but this is an independently certified scheme. So 
although IFO Responsible Supply, FORS, which is a separate entity to IFO, actually holds the scheme itself, um, it is managed externally. So uh, fish meal producers really need to meet the standards of that scheme and are audited uh, by external experts to ensure that they do meet those standards over time. Uh, and then they can be granted certification in meeting those standards. In development of some of the key aspects of that standard, uh, again, your listeners might be quite interested to, to know that the basis for the raw material sourcing were key clauses in the, um, the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization's Code of Good Practice for Responsible Fisheries, the CCRF. So really, it, it, is, it is based on a very strong framework, a good framework, or um, actually the, the, the management of those fisheries which supply the raw material for fish meal production. I think we need, are going to need to supply a glossary of acronyms for this show because <laughs> every episode it's always all these different acronyms that come up, something about this industry. Yeah, this um, industry yeah. I want to back up a little bit because a lot of our listeners work in the industry, in the seafood industry, yeah. so they understand some of these issues. But we also have a number of listeners that are just learning about seafood and the seafood industry in general. So I want to back up and let's just talk about fish meal and fish oil. What is it? Where does it come from primarily? You know, on a on a general level, what should people know about fish meal and fish oil? Because then we can get into kind of some of the rumors and misconceptions that go around about it. Yeah. Okay. Right. Well, going back to basics on fish meal and fish oil. Fish meal and fish oil is essentially produced from two different sources. Uh, one source is whole fish, which are not eaten directly by the market. So there, so there's no market for eating these these fish. They're not. They're not appetizing, they're not attractive. Like what types of fish would that be? Examples of that are, for instance, the Peruvian anchovy, which is the the most important by volume. And, uh, you know, just as an aside, in in terms of the direct human consumption market for Peruvian anchovy, what I can say is the Peruvian government for many years has recognized the importance of this multi-million ton fishery um, along its coastline. and, And as has invested a lot of money in trying to get um, a lot to promote domestic consumption of this fish directly and uh, to no avail because um, although some people can eat a few of them, it, it's certainly by no means uh, a fish that people want to eat regularly. So and mm. the, and therein lies part of the issue for the direct consumption market. Um, from an info perspective, we talk about this a lot because again, it's it's one of the things that the industry is often questioned about is why why do you produce fish meal and fish oil from these fish species, isn't it better just to eat these fish first? Well, from our point of view, uh, we would agree with that. If, the, if there's a food market for these fish species, then it will go into that food market. And the people who want those, those fish will pay more for it than they would if it goes into raw material for fish meal and fish oil production. And that's the way that the market works. Where there isn't a market for direct human consumption, it is a good opportunity to use these fish, which generally come from very well-managed fisheries. The, there are elements of the biology of the, these species, like the Peruvian anchovy. Other examples are Menhaden off the east coast of the U.S., mm sardine and anchovy uh, species around the world. Sandio is another one in, in Europe, blue whiting in Europe as well. There are many of these different species around which are not attractive to the food industry. Um, but these small pelagic species which dominate the raw material uh, supply into fish meal, fish oil production are uh, essentially by their biology fast growing, highly productive in nature and uh, they become mature very early, so either a, a year old or two years old, and they can produce many eggs. And 
when the environmental conditions are right, they can be extremely productive fisheries. So this is a natural resource which is present, which is pretty well managed in comparison to a lot of the food fisheries, and which is then used actually to produce protein around the world and really support the agriculture industry. So that's the one thing I would say about um, the whole fish which are used. And there, there are about 12 to 15 species in, in general which actually meet that whole fish component of fish meal, fish oil production. What I would say is that's about two-thirds of the, that annual raw material supply. About one-third of that annual raw material supply actually comes, comes from the trimmings which are left over when fish which are used for food are processed. So if you think about fish like cod, like haddock, like mackerel, herring, such like, when the fillets are taken off these fish, what is left then can become a raw material and supply into the production of fish meal and fish oil too. So this is essentially a great story too, because otherwise that material would just go into landfill. And, And that is a third of total raw material supply on an annual basis. The trend is increasing for that portion as well. So we're able to use more of that raw material over over time. Still one or two issues around how we actually capture that raw material in some of the fisheries, particularly vessel at sea processing can sometimes be an issue for capture of that material. But essentially that is a very good, very useful raw material uh, supply as well. How do you go from a fish or fish trimmings to getting fish meal and fish oil? Because So fish meal is kind of like a powder ingredient, right? Yeah. That goes into the and then the oil is is like a binder, correct? Yeah, the, and, interesting. And that's yeah, where there's a lot of the omega threes and stuff are in in the oil. So how do you go from a fish to these usable products? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the Spanish word for fish meal is uh, harina, uh, which means flour. Uh, so it's really it looks like a brown flour, uh, really, and that's the way it's processed. Uh, essentially, that raw material is cooked. It's, it's quite a short process. It happens very quickly over time. But there's a cooking component. There's a pressing component where liquid is separated off. That liquid contains both moisture and oil. That oil is then separated from the liquid. The liquid is returned, and that liquid includes some very interesting compounds like some of the soluble proteins, which are very important nutritionally. We're returned back into the solid fraction. The solid fraction then is, over a period of time, uh, dried, uh, then milled, uh, and then produces a product at the end, which is about 8% moisture, somewhere between 68 and 72% protein, and somewhere between 8 and 12% oil. Those oils, of course, include the omega-3s that we know so well, the EPA and the DHA, that I'm sure you, yep. you discussed at some yep. length with uh, Karim Kermali and Ferramaris. Yeah. So this question's coming from a person who doesn't know very much about fish meal. (laughs) Okay. So um, my question is, so the fish and the species that are fed this fish meal and fish oil, if they were not being farmed and if they were in the wild, would they be eating these kinds of fish species in the wild naturally? Or is it, are they naturally carnivorous or do they eat something else? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, And, you know, if you look at a major component of modern aquaculture is the salmon farming industry. And and whereas there are some species like shrimp that have overtaken salmon in terms of volume of production, salmon's an interesting one to look at because arguably a lot of the technology that we have for modern aquaculture has been developed through that salmon farming uh, system. Now, if if you look at what wild Atlantic salmon eats, in the natural environment, um, I can certainly point you towards a paper that, that shows they eat uh, blue whiting, they eat sand eel, they eat 
herring. Now you'll note that I, I just mentioned those species as a raw material supply for fish meal production. Right. And, I, and I don't think, uh, this, this is no coincidence, this is because these species are really producing that full nutritional complement that salmon really need. Uh, this, is, this is a really, really important point. And, you know, when we're looking at replacing fish meal and diets, and, and you know, in FO we acknowledge this, I said up front that the aquaculture industry is growing. We, we don't really have much more than that 5 million tons of fish meal and 1 million tons of fish oil every year. We need more feed, really. So that's a limit for what can be produced, it, you it, It's finite. There, there, are, there are ways to get a little bit more out of it. There, there's more byproduct that we could capture over time. There might be other resources which we can utilize better as well, other stocks of fish which might be utilized better, which are a little bit underutilized just now um, too. But, but essentially, it's... The increase in fish meal and fish oil will not align with the rate of increase of aquaculture production globally. And that's actually, I don't, I don't mean to interrupt you. I'm going to, I want I want you to finish your thought because I know you're on a roll, but I wanted to put out there that I think that's a really good, that's really good information for people to have because saying that, yeah, there's a finite amount that we can take from here that addresses the overfishing issues that people like to bring up and yeah, things like yeah. that. You know, if you're overfishing, feed fish, then you're not going to have what you're going to just, you're going to deplete it. You're going to not be able to produce what you're already doing. So you, it seems like the industry has found that cap. We can continuously collect this amount of fish for fish meal, fish oil, and not have a negative depleting impact on the wild stocks of these fish, which will allow us to do. And that's, there's your sustainability story right there. And that's, I feel like one of the misconceptions that people hear about it is, oh, we, we need to find all of these replacements because we're taking too many fish out of the ocean to feed the fish that we're farming, but it sounds like that is pretty well figured out. I think you're spot on with that analysis. I think I think really this is this is the key point, and it's the one that we're we're often challenged on. But uh, yeah, yeah, the the volume of production of fish meal and fish oil globally hasn't really changed too much in the last twenty years. So the misconception that there is more pressure being put on how these fisheries operate is just plain wrong. We, we know we know there are some tensions in some fisheries and there's some areas where there's room for improvement, but on the whole, in general, the vast majority of these fisheries continue to provide that raw material that they always have. And where improvements uh, need to be made, then we're, we're, we've, got a, we've got a format to do that and we're, we're really interested in working with others and taking that forward as well through mechanisms like fisheries improvement projects, for instance, too. Mm. So, so there's, there's, a great, there's a great story there. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you, you go back to the nutritional basis, and I was on a roll, but... <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> the, what, what, you, what you find, when you, when you drill down into fish meal and what is fish meal, and, and I mentioned those individual species there, when you get down into the protein level and then you get down further... Uh, beyond protein into micronutrients, you start to look at things like the amino acid profile of the, the different proteins that are available in there. Uh, you start to look at things like vitamins and minerals, which are present in fish meal. You start to look at, the, there's some very interesting other compounds. There are, there are small peptides in there. There are amino acids like taurine as well in fish meal too, which seems to have a stimulant effect. Um, there are compounds like trimethylamine oxide. Uh, there are lots of different things in there that you, you just don't have this richness uh, as a feed ingredient in some of these alternatives. And this includes things like uh, the bacterial proteins, the insect meals and the like, which actually have 
quite good amino acid profiles, but they just don't have these other materials. And that's not optimal for the. I mean, the natural food for what that species would be eating is going to be optimal for its nutrition. That's exactly yeah, right. Growth yeah. and everything. Yeah, it's, it's not. And look, if you look at what's happened to salmon over the years, early 1990s, salmon feed was 90% fish meal, fish oil. Now we're talking about something like 25 to 30% fish meal, fish oil combined. Wow. Uh, and and we've and we've made salmon vegetarian. Uh, I know. Um, again, the feed companies will tell you they've they've done their thing, and they have. You know, these fish, the fish still grow. Uh, they still grow at the same rate, uh, really, or or better rates. The feed conversion ratios are good as well. But the question really is about what happens in terms of the fish health. What happens sometimes with quality issues around how the fish are produced as well. Um, so there there are there are things in there as well which are really interesting to look at too. Yeah. And taste, right? I mean, using different ingredients for the fish food, will that have an effect on the taste when that fish is harvested and for human consumption? Almost certainly. But I I don't think there's there's probably, we haven't haven't really started the research on that side Mm. of the the quality, but I I think. And is that really that noticeable? (laughs) Well, yeah, again, I mean, that's that's probably a question really for the the aquaculture producers to take forward. And and in many instances, a lot of the aquaculture product really sells itself. The market's very strong. It's very, very well received. And in retail, as it it should be, because the, you know, the the strength of aquaculture really is the the guaranteed supply, the guaranteed quality, which comes through. And that is met with uh, standard feed production systems too. But you know, there there are some interesting things when you when you start looking at individual species and, and and some of the maybe the health management scenarios. There are some interesting points around that as well. The other thing to bear in mind is that there are more than two hundred different farm species around the world. These are species which actually require feed. Uh, if you looked at the the non-fed species, the list is even bigger. Yeah. But for the fed species, every single species. Requires different nutritional requirements, and again, uh, when we farm fish, then the economic model has to stack up. And if we're looking at it from an economics perspective, then you tend to farm the higher value species like salmon, like shrimp, like bass, bream, turbot, others as well, and, and some of the interesting new species like grouper as well. You know, things like that. They're really, really interesting sturgeon what they have in common is that these are carnivorous species that got a, a very strict requirement for a lot of these uh, essential yeah. nutrients and these amino acids that i talked about these are described as essential amino acids i think there are about 12 of them in total they're also essential fatty acids as well they're called essential because they must come in the feed the, the animal cannot manufacture these physiologically themselves it has to come in the feed and uh, like I say, fish meal and fish oil are particularly rich sources of a lot of these materials. If we looked at, uh, I, I know I know a paper on Barramundi, for instance, and this is a really interesting one uh, as well, a scenario. This, this paper shows that although fish meal can be replaced in the Barramundi diet, I think the, the paper suggests that complete replacement is possible. In practice, complete replacement was not a good thing, and the author had uh, decided that uh, there was a threshold of 15% inclusion of fish meal based on, in this instance, not nutritional factors, but actually palatability factors. The, and these are some of these other compounds that I talked about, which are, you know, when they're combined in, in a feed pellet, uh, they make sure that the, the fish actually accepts the food which is supplied to them. 
And also the food yeah. is attractive to them in the first place as well. Again, there are there are volatile compounds in fish meal which actually are attractants. And, and again, not surprisingly, uh, these these fish are carnivorous in the wild. They're the best mm-hmm. domesticated situation, you would expect them to be attracted to uh, exactly the same thing. So there are very, very good reasons why, although fish meal is in, declined in inclusion rate over time, it will not be removed from a lot of these diets. It's still going to be in there and it will work with the other ingredients. And those other ingredients, we, we need to look at the basket of all those other ingredients and how best to use them. Although I said all those different species have got different nutritional requirements, when you look at a single species over the production cycle of that single species, they may also have different requirements. So, so what a mm. juvenile fish needs, what a fish in a hatchery needs is different to what it may need as a grower. What it needs as a grower can be different to what broodstock fish might need. And broodstock fish need very, very good nutrition because they're obviously going to lay down the eggs for the next generation as well. So it's important that that nutrition is optimal too. And I think this is what we've talked about. Fish meal fish are probably going to be used strategically in the future for some of these really, really important diets, whether it's hatchery feeds or broodstock feeds. I think that's where the real high value of fish meal and fish oil as ingredients will come through. Yeah, I didn't even think about that, the different levels of the, the uh, life cycle and stuff. It's fascinating. I was really interested to see what your take is on these new ingredients that are coming up and, and potential replacement or partial replacement of fish meal and fish oil with these. Uh, when I was in college, I did a fellowship program where we were testing soy-based protein, soy soy meal replacement of fish meal in various percentages on juvenile summer flounder. And we would have different tanks. You know, this tank is getting fed a 10% replacement. This one's getting, you know, up to, I think, 60% replacement before we started to see drop-off of growth of the fish. But I wasn't involved in the analysis of the tissue content and all that stuff, but I was kind of the grunt cleaning the tanks and feeding the fish. But it it got me thinking that, you know, it's really interesting that, you know, we found that we couldn't do a complete replacement with soy meal without impacting the growth of the fish. And so when I hear things like the um, Veramaris algal oil, where they say we can completely replace it, that's, you know, having worked in a little bit of that work, that's amazing to me to see that. Um, And now we're seeing the other side where, yeah, like you said with the barramundi, you totally can do for some of these species, a complete replacement, but is it having effect on fish health and the quality of the fish and stuff like that? And will they even mm-hmm. take it? So I'm really interested to see moving forward, what do you think is going to happen with this? And I know you said that fish meal might be more used a little more strategically for higher end feeds for species that require it. But where do you see the melding of these two things coming together, these alternative feeds and the continued production of fish meal, fish oil? Yeah, another great question. I, th- I think before I go into answering that, I'll just uh, just a quick mention on fish nutrition trials. That's a classic nutrition trial that you described. I think a lot of us have been involved in that over time. Personally, I, yeah. miss, I missed the opportunity to get the wellies on and get, get in, into some tank work. <laughs> uh, I really enjoyed it and I, and, I, and I miss it now. I'm stuck at a desk most of the time. But anyway, you know, there, there's, a, there's something here which is really interesting, which is if you're doing these replacement studies in the lab, they, they tend to be, by their nature, um, very controlled conditions. That's what you would expect. If you'd sign a yep. study, you're, you're controlling a lot of the external factors as far as you can. Um, they tend to be replicated, but these, these also tend to be um, quite small tanks. They tend to be small fish used at a particular point in the production cycle as well. But essentially, there's a lot of control here. 
And, and really, you know, this goes back to what I was saying before in terms of um, the nutritional contribution a fish meal fish oil makes to the fish. And, and here I'm talking about the robustness of this fish and the, the ability of the fish to cope with um, whether it's a disease challenge or whether it's external stressors uh, in the physical environment, like temperature increases, as we might see with climate change scenarios, for instance, salinity fluctuations, current speeds, storm events, things like that. Uh, yeah, breeding viability. And stuff exactly, like that. all this, all this stuff. Yes, the results you get in the lab might show that it works in the lab under controlled conditions, but really how that translates into the field situation, the farming situation, I think, again, this is an open question. You know, there, there's still a lot more that we don't know about this for a lot of these fish species like salmon, like like shrimp, which require a lot of protein, require a lot of the nutritional factors that, that come out of fish meal and fish oil. Yeah. It, you asked about how fish meal and fish oil might meld with the the other novel ingredients. Well, you know, it's an interesting place. Well, here we are in 2019. When when I was studying, I remember reading a, a fish nutrition textbook in the early 1980s that talked about single cell protein. That's essentially the same as the, the bacterial protein that we're looking at today. Insect meal might be a little bit new, but you know, a lot of the technologies are, are, are promoted as uh, new and innovative, but actually they've been around for quite a long time. It's interesting that, that really they're still yet to get to the market. And I, I don't know fully why that is the case with the bacterial proteins, for instance. But as I said before, from our perspective, there's space for everyone here and it's much needed. So, you know, we've all got to work together. I think from an info perspective, one of the things that unfortunately we get involved with time to time is the fact that some of the novel ingredients try to place themselves in a superior position market position from the perspective of sustainability and actually when you when you look into the, the production processes what's involved this is questionable so i think my plea to those other novel ingredient manufacturers was let's just get on with producing the, the volume of feed that we need for aquaculture growth. Let's just work together on that. That's really, really important. Um, to really answer your question, it's about looking at how all these uh, novel ingredients provide the nutrition for aquafeeds or all those different, that different range of species that I've described before. They're all different. All the novel ingredients are different. They all bring different things in. And really it's coming down to either the science from the point of view of universities and such like, but probably in this instance, more the feed companies and the, the, the behind the scenes, the commercial research really to, to actually look at those formulations and really get the best advantage that they can out of what is available for them over time too. So, so it's really about that. But my plea again is really let's work together. It's, it's, it's about, it's for the good of the whole industry really. Yeah. Well, I that's why we have the podcast is we, <laughs> our mission is to get, education about the seafood industry out there and to get people to eat more seafood because if people aren't eating more responsibly sourced seafood then where does that leave us so i think we always talk about on the podcast how we're everyone's kind of having these in, internal battles about whether it's wild versus farmed or ingredients whatever it is and just like you said we got to find a way to work together to better the industry and to, to just promote um, responsible or sustainable seafood yeah i think it is there's a lot of science out there to be done in this. And it, it, I, from what I'm getting from you, it seems like what, what it's going to come down to is a whole lot of people doing a whole lot of studies to f combine all of these ingredients, including fish meal, fish oil, and some of these novel ingredients that we've mentioned, 
to figure out the optimal combination of them to match up with the optimal nutrition needs for certain species. So yep. if you're a upcoming scientist, undergrad or graduate student that's looking for some really interesting work in the future, there's a lot of work to be done here and a lot of science to be done, which is encouraging as long as you can get the funding for it. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that message of the let's work together about this issue because it's something that needs to be done. There's always going to be a need for fish feeds, so we might as well all work together and work to create the best possible feed for fish and for human consumption. And I think it's kind of a microcosm example of the seafood industry as a whole, as Justin mm -hmm. and Sean were just saying. It seems to be a common thread throughout the industry where there are not necessarily conflicting sides, but sides that are trying to accomplish similar things, but going about it in different ways, such as wild versus farmed fish. And really what we're all trying to do is just encourage seafood consumption. So yeah. I love the message of we just need to work together about it. It doesn't matter how it gets done. It just needs to get done somehow. Come on, people. Smile on your brother. <laughs> completely agree i've never really understood that the the um distinction between farmed and wild i think it's, it's all one seafood industry and uh like you say we really need to just promote the fact that that fish is the is the healthy option from the point of view of human nutrition but also the planet yeah yeah for sure well we're getting a little short on time i don't want to keep you for too long but one thing that i that i think our listeners might find interesting when i worked with bap you know we spend a lot of time in those applications and the standards and stuff. And um, BAP does have requirements for fish meal, fish oil sourcing and fish in, fish out ratios and things like that. And one thing that I always thought was interesting that I didn't really think about is this idea of like species, they call it, uh, where fish are cannot be fed feed that uses fish meal and fish oil from the same species or a, a closely related species of that. Do you... Do you have anything, any comment on that? Because I thought that was kind of fascinating and that I didn't ever think about beforehand. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's actually a carryover from European legislation and it, and it links more to the farming of other animals. It, it was a way of managing the risk of, uh, I'm going to give you another acronym now, TSE, <laughs> Transmissible Spongiform Encephalopathies. Uh, what? Wow. Get out of here with that. <laughs> so, uh, back also no, oh my God. It was also known as, <laughs> it was known as mad cow disease. You might remember that one. Uh, yeah. Yes. Oh yeah, I know that I one. I can digest late, that one. Late, but that's, well, late late that's, <laughs> that's way less cool than, I'm not even going to try it. You're going to need the, to have you write that down and send it to us. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll certainly do that. Um, so, so that uh, European legislation, I think early early 2000s or the late 1990s animal byproducts regulations were really set in place in europe this is um, to try and uh, mitigate the risk of tses developing in in any of the farm species the focus was really on terrestrial species um, like uh, pig poultry beef cattle uh, really from that that perspective but um, unfortunately the application went wider and it came into fish as well, really to, to try and prevent any risk of TSEs in the fish, which actually, to my knowledge, have not been identified in fish. So, And when you think about this logically, if in the wild, salmon may eat salmon, trout may eat trout. So, right. so actually, yeah. from, a, from a risk perspective, it's probably extremely no, low, if, if not even they're probably not even there at all. But it, it was driven by the legislation from that point of view. So I think the, the standard has just taken that a little bit further as well. 
it, it still applies. So if you if you are making and, and of course aquaculture byproduct is used as fisheries byproduct is in that third mm -hmm. of the raw material which goes into fish meal fish oil production. So if you make fish meal from, for instance, a farm salmon byproduct, then that that is not allowed to be used as fish feed, which then goes into salmon, certainly in Europe from, from that point of view. There are restrictions on that, which are still in place. It's very much precautionary, uh, probably not, not based too much on science, but it was it was legislation which is of its time, so I can certainly understand why um, BAP also followed suit as well. Yeah, I just thought that was really interesting. But yeah. what you said makes a lot of sense. I mean, terrestrial species like beef cattle and uh, poultry and and pork, swine, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. those are not by nature cannibalistic species. Yeah. And a lot of fish and crustacean, especially crustacean species, a lot of marine species are by nature somewhat cannibalistic i mean if you are trying to grow lobster and you know you have to keep them constantly in motion or else they'll just all eat each other exactly. so that is that's interesting I, that's another side i'm just learning so much my brain is just firing <laughs> on all cylinders right now are gonna pop off. yeah exactly from, from um, that point of view actually uh, it just reminded me um cod farming we've got the technology to farm cod the thing is it's oh really? really it's not really produced in volume just now because the Wild fisheries have recovered to the extent that the, the market price for cod from fisheries doesn't make farming worthwhile. But the technology is in place and farmed cod were produced certainly in, in Scotland and Norway uh, late 1990s, early, early 2000s. But one of the big issues in farming cod is actually stopping them from eating each other. Uh, and you really have to keep it very well graded. Uh, you have to really manage the, hus the husbandry of these fish. Uh, juvenile right the way through is really, really important. So you have to keep a narrow size range. You have to keep them well fed as well. Otherwise, they, they will predate on each other in the tank, which is obviously not good from a farming perspective. No, not at all. <laughs> for, our, for our listeners who might not understand, grade, when he said well-graded, you, when you're farming fish, you need to continuously, every once in a while, go through and grade your stock and, and separate them by size to make sure that you don't get tiny little fish with bigger fish Because for this this reason exactly. So that's, you know, just to clear that up in case our listeners weren't sure. So w the cod farming, the, you, you're opening up all these different things in my mind. You're killing me here. This is going to be a four-hour episode. Um, cod farming is not something you ever hear about. I didn't, honestly, didn't think that it was possible. Were the, was that in marine cages, just like salmon? The, gro the on-growing side of it can be done in cages, um, and it has been done in cages. Uh, actually, you, you, you do need a good marine finfish hatchery to produce um, mm -hmm. the the juveniles which you then stock out into the cages or stock into into marine tanks one way or another but uh, yeah. it, it's interesting actually when you the reason why salmon the reason why salmon farming is successful is actually is to do with biology it's to do with the fact that the salmon eggs are so big that when the when the juvenile uh, fish hatch they're known as alvins you probably know all this but I, I'll mention it anyway I hope I'm not boring you yeah, but our listeners There's, don't. I mean, necessarily uh, yeah, know the, any of this. So. When, the, when the juvenile salmon hatch out of the egg, they've got uh, an endogenous food supply. They've got what's called a yolk sac, uh, and they can live off that yolk sac for quite a long period of time, which allows the fish to grow to a certain size where it is big enough to then eat uh, pellets, which are produced in the farming system, obviously, and provided to them. So, so that's easy. But... A lot of the marine finfish species, the eggs are much smaller. The time to hatch is smaller. The, type, the, the amount of yolk sac that they have is much smaller. So they need to eat very, very quickly 
after they have hatched. And as a consequence of that, they're much, these are much smaller animals when they're looking for food. And they're so small that actually it's difficult to supply pellets for them. So the, a lot of focus was actually on um, producing live feed technology, brine shrimp culture, rotifer culture, and the like green algae systems and providing mm-hmm. live feed for those juvenile fish. A lot of it came from halibut farming technology in the first instance. And then, uh, but, but the yields in halibut were very low, partly because these fish need very stable conditions. They're very much open water systems. But when, when they were applied to cod production, cod were actually quite successful. So the juveniles can be produced. The issue with cod farming is not the production of juveniles, it's about the market price. Uh, the, it's, difficult, the, it's difficult to achieve a cost of production in aquaculture systems, which is below uh, the market price that comes for wild fish from the fisheries just now because they've yeah. recovered. And so it's pure economics. Interesting. All right, well, I do want to wrap up soon. We've been almost an hour, but I had, do you have any more questions before? Anything else you want to? We might want to save this if we do have you come back on and Andrew and do a roundtable. But misconceptions about uh, fish meal, fish feed, fish oil. Do we want to get into that or put that off? Yeah, I think we kind of did. I mean, the mm-hmm. biggest misconceptions that I hear around fish meal, fish oil is around the taking of wild stock and, and depletion of wild populations for feeder fish. I'm not sure if you know, if you, I mean, I'm sure you do know (laughs) any other larger misconceptions that you see out there generally kind of circling around on the consumer level. But um, that's kind of the level that we want to start at to make consumers more comfortable with this issue. So, Okay, um, so I mentioned something. You might want to splice this back in at some point. I don't know, but one of the the key points or a key misconception is that uh, all these different proteins are like for like replacements into fish meal and they're just not as i said to you before the there's a certain richness to fish meal there are different nutritional factors in fish meal that you just don't get in these other ingredients so uh, when the aquaculture industry is being criticized for use of fish meal and whatever species production doesn't really matter. There's a, a complete misunderstanding about this, just get the fish meal out of there. As I said to you before, that has no bearing on how the fisheries are managed because these are largely well-managed fisheries anyway. So that the fish will fish meal will still be produced, it will just go into another market. So it, it's actually illogical to do that from, from that point of view. But you, because of the elements of these other ingredients, you, you cannot just replace fish meal with soya, as you as you quoted in your study as well. The other interesting thing about some of the vegetable proteins is if you'd worked on soya, you also know about anti-nutritional factors. Some of the vegetable proteins have anti-nutritional factors, and these inhibit uh, the uptake of nutrients in, in the gut, and they have to be managed as well from a feed perspective too. So, so there are there are all sorts of things to bring into this. If you look at insect meal, there are there are elements of, of insect meal production, like for instance, uh, the insect meal is made from pupae. Pupae have, uh, the pupae share was chitin. Chitin is indigestible as well. There's another issue that you have to deal with as well. What do you do with the chitin and fish meal? How do you manage that? Every single one of these ingredients has, has, has different strands to it. And uh, I suppose it fits to what we were saying before about how how they meld together and how we use them as potentially a basket of ingredients yep. to get what is best for that global industry. So, yeah. so there's, there's a lot that we, we don't know, but essentially you cannot just go take fish meal out and put something else in. That, you just can't do that because they're... It, it's a nice dream, things. but yeah, it there's doesn't so make many sense. good things in fish meal that yes, if you if you analyze that fish meal, went down to it, the, the molecular detail of it, potentially you can buy off the shelf uh, ingredients and, and make a feed with what fish meal is producing. But in practical terms, 
that fee is just so expensive it makes no economic sense to do that yeah and that's i think that's also another big driving factor for feed manufacturers and farmers to use less fish meal and oil in their feed i think cost is another thing that i hear coming up you know using less fish meal fish oil is going to lower the cost of the feed is that is there any truth to that or is that just kind of a a rumor going around there's there's an element of truth to that because of course fish meal and fish oil are expensive ingredients and that the the, the economic value of the ingredients reflects the nutritional value of what they provide. Right, you get what you pay for. It. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, makes sense. There brings back the way that we need to work together and figure out the, that right balance that in terms would help not drive costs, but help balance the costs, but also get the optimal nutrition to those yeah, you fish manage, so they can grow well. and You manage that balance yeah. between cost and... Yeah. Quality. Well, the other interesting thing, and you you guys said it a little bit earlier on, is is um, how does this relate to the quality of the end product? Mm, yeah. those, those micronutrients that I talked about, the, the minerals and the vitamins that are in there, some of those other compounds too. Uh, I mean, potentially some of these are carried over into the end product of the farmed fish. Uh, and that relates also to the nutritional value of what the consumer is buying in the store. Uh, and so, again, there's, there's something here around um, an understanding of what the fish has been fed over that production cycle and actually how nutritional value, how, how much nutritional value there is in that fish as well for consumption. Yeah, and that's important. I mean, it's amazing to think about how much of an impact. I mean, it's just like people. When you eat well, you're healthy and you feel good. Same with the fish. It's amazing how much of an impact what goes into that feed has on the fish itself and the easiest example is the astaxanthin in salmon feed yeah because it's it's visual you know you put that in, if you don't put that in the feed you're gonna get like gray salmon <laughs> so yeah. um you know that's it, it, that's just an example for some of people who have have trouble conceptualizing this where you know you got to put the right stuff in the feed that the fish needs or else the fish won't get what it needs and then it's going to be different than you expect so i think that's a good place to wrap it up do you have anything else that you'd like to get out there i was just going to take that one a little bit further forward if you uh show me to just for a second uh an interesting one uh, uh, is the the uh, a potential uh, consequence of declining fish oil inclusions in um, aqua feeds is that there is a lower vitamin d content in the feed which is supplied to fish now um, western diet is, means that we're largely deficient in vitamin d we can we can synthesize vitamin d if we're exposed to sunlight which might be easier for <laughs> listeners not here in new england in your country but uh, it's certainly not good it's not easy in the uk that's for sure but there are other places around that we can do that but essentially, there, there are a lot of places where we need that vitamin D in our diet. And, and clearly, farm fish is an important component in our diets these days. Um, but with, with a uh, decreasing inclusion of fish oil, there's been less vitamin D actually going into, into feeds over time. And as a consequence of this, the, the European Food Safety Authority, the EFSA, have actually had to look at um, or make an opinion on providing enhanced vitamin D uh, substitutes into into aquafeeds. So this all comes at a cost, and this is what I'm saying. It's not straightforward at all to reduce these ingredients because you are reducing yeah. some very very important nutritional factors when fish meal and fish oil decline. Yeah, I'll leave it. I'll leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could definitely talk for much longer, and I think we would. Love, sure. We were going to ask you if uh, 
you'd be willing to get on another call with us at some point in the future to do a members only episode because you know we could really get into the weeds on some of this stuff that the GAA members would find invaluable and uh if you'd be willing to do that i think that would be yeah absolutely that would be that would be great thanks for the great so so if you're a gaa member keep on a lookout in the future for a a full interview with neil about some of this stuff in the markets and and we'll we'll get a little more into the weeds keep it a little less get a little less general and i think that'd be awesome so if people want to contact you or learn more about ifo or anything like that what's the best way for them to do that really through the the ifo website which is uh ifo iwfo dot net uh, and uh, there's a there's a stack of information on there which um really it's many hours of uh, great reading uh and <laughs> people to look on that uh, in the first instance yeah. yeah and we'll put a link to that right in our show notes so our listeners will have easy access to the direct link to that website yeah for sure. Yeah. All right. You guys good? You got anything else you want to talk about? I'm good. Yeah, no, I just I appreciate fantastic. the time. That I, I learned, just like you, Sean, I, I learned a lot from this I conversation. I know, your so mind just it. starts going. All right. So again, Neil, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Neil Aukterloni, how's that? Perfect. Perfect. Pretty, pretty good. <laughs> so, um, and he's coming from IFO, the Marine Ingredients Organization. And uh, we really appreciate having him on and learning us up on some fish meal and fish oil stuff. And I hope that as a listener, you got something out of it. So thank you so much. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Bye now. Bye.